0: Welcome to Sober Conversations and thanks for joining us today. Sober Conversations is the podcast that gets to the heart of addiction recovery by examining all the angles of the sober lifestyle and just what it means to be alive, healthy, and thriving. My name is Dr. Herbie Bell, and today's episode number nine is entitled, A Prominent Psychiatrist's Opinion. Dr. Peter Newsom is a triple board certified medical doctor in emergency medicine and psychiatry. He has over 40 years of training and personal experience practicing mindfulness. Our conversation will survey his integrated and holistic approaches to addictive and compulsive disorders, but most importantly, revealing just what dedicated healers are out there in our collective effort to address America's number one public health issue, addiction. Let's get to our conversation right now. Dr. Newsom, thanks for being with us. I'm just going to ask you some questions, some straightforward questions. And let's just see if we can get into a little rap here about these things, things addiction and things recovery and things as it relates to your practice. Um, So are you okay with that? I think it'll be a lot of fun. Good deal. So you have a remarkable practice. You have carved out a niche in the middle of Silicon Valley uh, with a practice that includes uh, a strong focus on mindfulness and mindfulness is such an integral piece in addiction recovery and you assert that using mindfulness across the board in your experience is in your quote just as good as using any drug in many situations and sometimes better and faster at helping patients heal can you elaborate on that um,
1: I think the first um. Thing is, just to talk about, I mean, mindfulness in a very specific way. So many people are talking about mindfulness now, and I don't know what everyone is talking about. I know what I'm referring to, and I use a very precise um, sense of the word. Think of all the different things you can think about in this world zillions of things. So, but there's got to be some kind of a limit to thinking somewhere. Um, So whatever that boundary is, on the other side of that boundary, that's mindfulness. So mindfulness begins the moment all thinking stops. And we call it the silence of the mind, if you will. And we teach people how to get there and learn little by little how to live there more and more. Now, we call ourselves mindfulness-centered healing because we think of the mindfulness part of us as kind of the center of the mind so maybe the thinking is the periphery of the mind we all do a lot of thinking and hidden right inside all of that thinking which is pretty noisy is this wonderful silence which is mindfulness so if we can get you to start hanging out in the silence of your mind you'll really figure the rest of it
0: out yourself beautiful and you have techniques and and modalities and lots of different ways that you get at that I want to ask you uh, how you got to be so cool as a triple Ford certified physician, adolescent and adult psychiatry, as well as emergency medicine. And your present work is steeped in, let's call it holistic and integrated approaches, although it's always been the backdrop of your practice as I have gotten to know you. So can you give us a thumbnail sketch of how you evolved into this place and why this work is so interesting to you?
1: Uh, The standard uh, thing that I say to patients, if I try to explain myself a little bit, is that I sort of always wanted to be a psychiatrist. I don't know why. I mean, from the time I was 12 or something. But when I went to medical school and first experienced that world, it was sort of all the old Freudians. And I was so turned off by some of them, not all, but some of them I really was turned off by. So I decided I can't do four years of this you know, training, so I went into emergency medicine. And by some miracle, right about the same time in medical school, as I started studying psychiatry, I started learning mindfulness for some, from some wonderful teachers. And then I moved to New York City after internship and started really practicing both ER and mindfulness sort of in parallel. And... I had astounding mindfulness teachers, probably the greatest teachers on the planet. Um, I've been unimaginably lucky in the teachers I had. And I'd say that mindfulness was sort of like the, that was how I learned how to be a doctor. Um, I also had a wonderful teacher um, growing up. He was my pediatrician and then he was my advisor in medical school, Robert Mendelson, an astounding pediatrician in Chicago. Probably one of the first people to really, really deeply question um, Western medicine. Um, and he used to quote liberally to us from, a, a, an amazing Spanish Jewish physician named Maimonides. And so many things like the rule that, you know, in Greek medicine, the first rule of medicine is do no harm, you know, first do no harm. Well, that's not the first rule from Maimonides, which is it's never remove hope So if you're an ER doc and you're trying to connect with every patient and you're trying to find a way, like, what could I find that's hopeful for this person? And I think mindfulness really was a place where if I tried to be in that place, I somehow often, maybe not at first, but little by little, started to feel that I could maybe reach the the patient a little bit, connect with them a little bit. And as I trusted it, it was almost like a bridge and allowed me to sort of go from my heart sort of over to to theirs. Um, And I think little by little, you start to get it that in the silence of the mind, there's no thinking. So of course, there's no judgment. And I really, I'd say that was the really first rule for me is the beginning of connecting to to a patient is to have no judgment whatsoever. And if I'm not thinking, so if there's zero thought in me, then the patient can feel that no part of me is in any way judging them. And then they start to relax and they they give me a chance. And um, I tell you, people are just, they're so wonderful. And um, the gift of these wonderful people that I got to spend a little bit of time with, even as a neodoc. And um, so... I guess the end of the story is just that after 20 years of the ER, um, well, for one thing, 20 years is a long time in the ER and you start to kind of wear out. It's sort of a young man's game. Uh, and also in that 20 years, I went to more and more high intensity ERs. I ended up at Northwestern and at Northwestern, we would see people with a lot of medical problems simultaneously. And we'd only have about a minute or two per patient to evaluate them. So. As the complexity got worse, the time we got to spend with the patient got less, and after a while, you really had the feeling that trying to connect with the patient was sort of like um, a friend of mine once called it shooting golf balls off into a fog bank. You know, even if you, you know, hit the driver perfectly, you got no idea where it went, and you started to want to know more and more what happened to this person. I want to know what happened to this person. I want to know if, if they, if they changed, if they got better. So. By that time, psychiatry had really changed, and um, I gave these wonderful lectures, I thought anyway, at Northwestern on the psychiatry aspects of being an ER doc. Um, It's interesting that each lecture, I got more and more interested in this new era called biological psychiatry, which had really sort of replaced all the older Freudian stuff. And um, so I'd write these lectures and get super fascinated. Um, And each lecture, there would be fewer residents coming to my lectures which was kind of weird. And finally, I asked the the last lecture, I think maybe two residents came, and I said, how come nobody comes to my lecture? And they say, well, we all know what you're gonna talk about, and it's not on the boards. Which really, <laughs> I thought that was weird, because you know, a third of your patients in the ER are, have psychiatric problems or emotional problems, or at least a strong overlay of that. Uh, substance abuse problems are all over the ER, of course, and that's very much part of the psychiatric fold. So I kind of sort of saw the writing on the wall that, you know, it was really time to just go full in and i knew that the biological people were so much more focused on the brain and how it worked i just knew that they couldn't hurt me so i decided what the heck i'm gonna find a way to take mindfulness into psychiatry training and that's what i did
0: well um i saw patch adams remember the movie patch adams or patch adams is still around right yeah did you ever run into patch adams i never
1: did but i heard about him at one of the mind body medicine courses at harvard and uh Um, I think Robin Williams did an amazing job, but what you hear about the real guy, I mean, he was an incredible gift. When I, the first I heard about Patch Adams, it really reminded me of Mendelssohn. You know, my brother, my older brother had cystic fibrosis and Dr. Mendelssohn ran the CF ward at a wonderful old hospital in Chicago called Michael Reese. And uh, my mother then used to go in to see Dr. Mendelssohn on the north side of Chicago um, and my mother was, of course, very, very stressed being a young mom with a sick child. And my mother would say, she would say, when I could hear his voice saying hello to the people in the next examining room, his his voice was so glorious, half of my problems were gone. Love that. You know, Mendelssohn would come into a room like this bolt out of the sky or something, and... Uh, he was captivating, he was a gift, he was a man so full of love.
0: When I was in chiropractic school in the late 70s, uh, he, he was a champion for us too, so, th- so thank you for bringing, uh, bringing Dr. Mendelssohn's name uh, up. I want to ask you, let's get specific about addiction medicine uh, and what we're up against. And So here's the question, addiction medicine is dominated by the psychiatric profession and psychopharmaceutical industry. I'm sure you'd agree. Uh, And in view of the negative side effects and unintended consequences of so much drug therapy that's going on in our culture, what are your thoughts about how to turn this sort of uh, anchored uh, paradigm around so that more integrated, holistic approaches like yours uh, are the first choice? Okay, well, um, here I simply
1: have to start by saying I am so... Uh, really horrified at suboxone and this industry growing up around it. Um, I have a patient I I just sent not long ago to the uh, detox center up at my hospital and I uh, called the psychiatrist who admits there a friend of mine and I said under no circumstances is he to be put on suboxone because he's going there to get off of narcotics so my wonderful friend, of course, didn't try to put him on it. But another doctor came by every day and tried to get him on Suboxone. And while he was there, he was in group therapy with three or four other guys his age, you know, um, late adolescence, early 20s. And uh, three out of four were on Suboxone. And most of them had been on it now over two years. So I have never understood. Um, I didn't understand methadone. And I understand Suboxone even less. It makes no sense to me. Um, I would say my way of trying to connect with addicts is much more about trying to give them a sense of, you know, whether it's alcohol or whether it's cocaine or whether it's a narcotic. Look at this amazing work by Nora Volkow at NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. If you look at their MRIs, which show the dopamine receptors in the nucleus accumbens, and it shows that if you have a person that's freshly off of cocaine, their dopamine receptors are basically gone, which means you really kind of can't enjoy anything until they grow back. And it shows then the scans gradually improving over the course of about two years so that at the end of two years off cocaine, you start to be able to enjoy anything. Um, incidentally, methamphetamine, they've done the same work. Even at four years, you have nothing left in your nucleus accumbens. So for me, methamphetamine, I've found it's just, I don't know how to even start there because I don't see... They don't seem to get better, at least not at any rate that, that I've ever been able to wait long enough to see. Um, the other thing I would say is hugely important in terms of substance abuse. Why aren't we talking about age at onset? I'd say one of the most powerful graphs, which also seems to go across all drug classes of abuse, is if you start doing these drugs at 12 or 13, your odds of becoming an addict are around the range of 40 to 50 percent. Those are robust, robust findings. That's been duplicated a number of times. So if you have 40 or 50 percent shot if you start at 12 or 13, that goes down very smoothly to about a 1% chance of being an addict if you never use until you're 21. That's for all drugs of abuse. That's the first thing kids should be shown in, in school. Um, so I think the very first thing we should be talking about to these kids is um, that they need to be building self, they need to be building, the parts of our self that allow us to become um, a robust, strong, capable adult and the longer we put it off the harder it's going to be. Um, Once kids come in and they're really on substances um, I would say the very first thing to do is start putting them on massive amounts of aerobic exercise, really, really good diet get them to learn how to move, um, get them to be aware of their body and start teaching mindfulness You know, if you are going to put them on something, sometimes maybe they might need to be on a mild antidepressant or something like that. But again, it should be the smallest possible dose for the shortest period of time. And you should tell them, this isn't the point. You're the point. You know, if you're getting too depressed coming off this drug or too activated, well, there's a medication we might use ad hoc for a short time for whatever symptom of that part of your withdrawal. I think um, I'm not an expert in in any way on diet. And I know there's some wonderful people that are getting better and better at it. I admire all of you guys that get diet better than I do. The only place I'm so far getting to on diet is really avoiding the three white poisons, um, white sugar, white uh, flour, white rice, really trying to lower the carbs. And I'm um, very interested in getting people on a very low gradual modulation of insulin across the day in, ten, in terms of this, in, instead of this huge roller coaster which happens when, you, when you're taking in huge
0: amounts of carbs. You mean natural insulin production and not, yes. Does right,
1: it? so your natural, natural insulin production should be very, very low all day long as opposed to when you take huge amounts of carbs in you have these staggering amounts of insulin and then in a half an hour later you're hypoglycemic which of course causes the release of lots of adrenaline so your mood's going all over the place. So I think diet from the get-go, because people have to start eating the kind of way that we used to eat, you know, ten thousand years ago, twenty thousand years ago, when our ninety percent of our energy came from non-carb sources. So you have to forgive me because
0: I'm just a, a, a neophyte at trying to learn about diet. Well, not not in my experience, because what you're talking about is still esoteric out there, and I think that you were talking about 80% of the problem with respect to those three poisons. Let me ask you something specifically about your the fascinating niche that, that you all focus on in this office, or one of the things that you focus on. And speaking of fantastic uh, presentations in medical school that you were given, uh, Dr. Newsom came to my office and gave a wonderful presentation that people are still talking about, and it has to do with this um, technological era uh, screen addiction. And you have a program called Real Play for Real Kids. Can you talk about that for a sec?
1: Sure. Um, Now, some of this is a little bit speculative, and I've been, um, I think, greatly uh, become an admirer of John Gray and some other people who are um, writing pretty beautifully about the importance of play in childhood. And um, I also have been very much influenced by this amazing uh, guy, Panskeep, in his new book, The Archaeology of the Mind, um, and uh, Connor in his book, um, uh, The Evolution of Childhood. Uh, and so after giving thanks to them, uh, sort of quoting my sources, I would just say I'm becoming more convinced all the time that it's so gigantically important that we play as children the way children have played for the last million years. Figure something strange happened about 20-25 years ago. Kids love to play. They've always loved to play and somehow 20-25 years ago video games came out that were so alluring so addictive so attractive that they somehow lured kids into playing with this screen and of course there's nobody there playing with you there's just these little faces on the screen or maybe there's two kids staring at the same screen but One of the great things about the way kids played for the million years before that is an awful lot of the time it's humiliating and depressing and upsetting and you run inside and you're crying and if you're lucky your parents say well that's too bad you want to go play again and hopefully you brush yourself off and you go out and do it again and again and again and over this amazing period of maybe five six up to eleven or twelve you are Able to play with enormous amounts of time. Our little program RPRK tries to get these kids from like end of school until dinner time, so three to six p.m. on Wednesdays, a little longer, and trying to find ways to sort of regenerate sort of a Neolithic play group, which is a small group of kids. Remember, tribes didn't have a large group of kids. They didn't have a thousand kids. They had fifteen kids or maybe ten. So it's a small group of kids. They're mixed age, five to eleven, and you, we all stand back. You know, we. We do teach a lot of mindfulness and some other skills, you know, some theater and some martial arts and a few little things, music maybe, but mostly we try to stand back and let the kids do the most important thing, which is free play, because that's when the kids start to do their most powerful thing. They start to make up their own games. They make up their characters. They make up the rules. Nothing more important the kids need to learn how to do. Sure, maybe they're getting upset a little bit, that's kind of being a kid, but little by little the group is able to move a little bit and calm them down, or our therapists go in and make sure everything's okay, and little by little, the kids start to form this amazing thing, which is a, a free play group, mixed age free play. And so our hope is that those kids are gonna start learning a little more social confidence every day, all the way through this period called latency. So they will arrive at adolescence socially confident Way, way, way more than if they'd spent the time looking at screens.
0: Remember, screens are never teaching any social
1: confidence whatsoever.
0: And when you there's talk tr- about screens, you mean from television to handheld devices to iPads, the rest of it?
1: Any screen, movie screen, all these things are screens, and there's nobody there playing with you. And even more diabolical, you know, in a weird way, the screens sort of lull us into feeling that we were playing with somebody. I mean, the screens have gotten so good. You almost feel as if you did hang out with someone today. But you didn't. Wow, yeah. And what we really should be remembering as parents is, wow, we've got to find a way to get our kids playing with our friends' kids and so forth. I've heard a number of times from parents now, I tell them, you know, well, can't you get your kids to go outside and play? So they try it. They come back the next week, you know what they tell me? They say, you know what my kids said when they came back in the house? I said what? They said, there's nobody there.
0: <laughs> That's
1: right. Right? So we we have to think of it much more broadly. We have to find ways to get parents to work together and all they got to do is agree to one thing. We're all going to get our kids outside playing together. This could really be a movement that could save an entire generation of kids.
0: Music to my ears and so you are saying beyond a shadow of a doubt with the brain science and with your training that we can actually change the architecture of the brain in a negative way through staring at these screens all day and you're saying the work you do can change the physical architecture of the brain with motion, you're making that face like, hey, don't put those words in my mouth, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: I would say at some point in time, we will have some sense of, um, we'll have some more advanced sense than we do now of where these social circuits reside. I think we're barely starting to understand where these circuits are and just the very, very beginnings of how these social circuits function, but I would say in a very simple way um, language we now know is learned in very clearly demarcated steps the first thing you learn is phonemes all the sounds of your your native alphabet Um, and then you put those together into words and gradually into sentences and grammar and so forth and we know about the age kids normally learn all these things, pretty well worked out What I'm suggesting is that, very possibly, nonverbal language, which is what a lot of social skills are based on, having a sense of what is he feeling right now, or putting out a good, uh, having a good command of my ability to transmit my my own emotions, which again, it's nonverbal communication. We must learn that during the 5 to 11 year period. Um, It's probably over on the other side of the brain, or maybe on both sides of the brain, but... If I'm only dealing with screens, I'm maybe learning something from maybe good actors and good TV shows and movies. But what am I learning in terms of my ability to effectively send out my emotional message, so that I, so it's becoming a real good dynamic two-way communication of feeling and emotion? The kids have got to get back to where her kids have been to the million for the last million years, because I want to see the return of Dennis the Menace. I want a scrappy. 10, 11-year-old kid that gets into trouble and knows just how far to push the parents and just how many rules to break, but you got to love him because the point is he's getting into it, he's getting, you know, uh, in the thick of it, and he somehow has become a survivor, and we've got to get that kid back.
0: I love that. I just heard uh, that Eddie Haskell turned 70, so for some reason I'm thinking of Eddie Haskell. Let me ask you this. Uh, or uh, let me see if I can get a prominent psychiatrist physician uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area to say, at the very least, movement, exercise, is remarkably important for brain development and for us to, to, to function properly. It's not just for the musculoskeletal system. It is, it is for global good health.
1: Well, absolutely. The brain is
0: constantly reusing the same circuits
1: over and over again. Um, circuits that we use, for instance, in martial arts, where we are learning incredibly quick ways... Of attack and defense. We probably are using those exact same circuits to be good businessmen 30 years later. A lot of the best businessmen have got a black belt. They don't tell you about it, but a lot of them know that it's a really great way to be good in business. Learning music as a kid makes you way, way better in math. The brain is reusing the same circuits over and over again in amazing combinations. So when you're little, the way that you can program all the circuits in the brain is through movement, because that's sort of the main business of childhood is to move. Kids are in love with moving. Watch them. Go out to a playground, look at the little kids that are two or three years old and you'll see just walking for the little ones, it's a dance. Every every step they're putting a little funny thing in it, a little funny move of their arm or their leg. You can see they're experimenting around. Once they're six or seven years old and they're walking along with that look on their face of, okay, when I get home I'm going to do my homework. So they're already looking very much in their head and very much kind of driven. but movement and the joy of movement I mean it's sort of like the gross national product of childhood is moving and and playing and making up games Um, I would say another thing which is that you know there's been some wonderful work recently just on the importance of exercise for instance in depression they did this study in three centers Texas Southern California and uh, Boulder Colorado and they found that if the kids actually did get on the treadmill and did like 45 minutes of intense Arabic exercise three times a week the um, those kids went into depression something over 80% of the time, which is way better than any medication we have.
0: Fantastic. So, you, so that extends to that opiate abuser and the methamphetamine user, that exercise will indeed expedite the process of returning those, that good neurotransmitter juice. Uh, you would say that's, that's a no-brainer, if you will?
1: Well, I mean, we know a number of activities now that se- certainly seem to correlate with increases in endorphins. Um, certainly, mindfulness does it, and certainly aerobic exercise does it. And one of the things I say to the kids that are thinking of going on buprenorphine, I'm saying, you know, any time you swallow any buprenorphine, you're turning off your own internal factories for making your own endorphin. And of course, endorphin is hitting the receptors that buprenorphine or any other narcotic hits, and and our our own internal narcotic endorphin. Is is hundreds or even thousands of times more powerful gram for gram. And buprenorphine is suboxone for the listeners, yes. But our own internal chemical is so much more powerful, but we can't build it if we're taking anything in by mouth. So the second you're taking in any narcotic by mouth, you're not going to build any endorphin today. So get in the business of building your own.
0: Why swallow the chemical if you can be it? Thanks for saying that out loud. I'm mindful of the time and your busy practice I want to ask you just a couple more questions you said something about uh, screen addiction what do you attribute to the rising tide of this adolescent addiction and mental illness just in general in our culture well I think there's a time and place for
1: everything and if if I'm right and um, I'm sure there's other people hopefully that are thinking along the same lines um, and if we are right Then this period of 5 to 11, you know, so-called latency. So we're done weaning, you know, we're we're starting to play with the other little kids, but we're not up to adolescence yet. So that amazing 5 or 6 years in between. If I'm right, that's where we learn social skills and where we start to gain social confidence and we know how to deal with people, how we get sort of street smarts, how we know who's safe and who isn't. You know, from this regard, I'd say one other thing that was just such a great gift from the ER. You know, once you really learn how to approach people with mindfulness and sort of give them a break, and just kind of hang with them, and let them set the pace, you start to realize, wow, 98, 99% of people are just kind of wonderful. Hmm. Now, that being said, 1% of people are very scary people. And you have to learn how to sense that tiny group, and really avoid them. Don't make eye contact, don't piss them off, whatever. Just hopefully they leave the ER without hurting anybody. But I would say that's probably also one of the big gifts of latency, And if you've really learned how to relate to all these people because you've spent so much time playing, you probably also know a tiny, tiny group, maybe 1% or less, gee, I'm really going to be worried about ever hanging out with that particular person, maybe. So you've learned the vast majority are quite safe, and one little tiny group, maybe I don't know about them. Um, So once you then get to adolescence, hopefully, you've carried your social confidence there with you. You know, Adolescents have got to sort of succeed in three spheres. They have to get some kind of decent grades, they got to get along with their family, and they have to have a social group. And usually in my practice at least, the social group is always the one that sinks their ship. So many of these kids are, are arriving in adolescence so socially weak. And when you're socially weak, you can just be blown out of the water by any insult. I've had kids that have um, Tried to commit suicide by getting disinvited to a birthday party. Wow! These are these are fifteen, sixteen-year-olds. Yeah. So stuff I never could have imagined twenty, thirty years ago. But now we have kids that are coming to adolescence very socially brittle. The slightest insult or letdown, socially speaking, can be a tidal wave to them because they haven't built up the resources, the the social resilience that they could that they should have done gradually, little by little by little.
0: Between ages, you know, five and eleven, let's say. So, common sense is not so common, and you're bringing a lot of it back into your practice and with your patients. Let's let's end on a high note. Can you can you give us just an example of a case that uh, has impressed you through the years? Somebody coming in, they're screen addicted, let's say, and you get them back moving and eating well. And sure, um, um, a
1: young man that came into the practice some years ago and was going into senior year in high school and basically had done very little besides screens and gradually had taken refuge in screens and screens had sort of just taken him over um, as so often happens. Um, And he now had maybe uh, one friend that he rarely saw and of course they just did the video game together on that. Um, But he had been pretty socially successful until about eight or nine when the screens started to erode his social life. Well... He came to us, he started doing a lot of Arabic exercise, which was unheard of for him. Then he started getting better and better at mindfulness. And then, of course, the way we teach it, we teach it so you learn how to do mindfulness more and more around other people. You know, you learn how to do it invisibly. And all of a sudden, as we had told him, friends started coming back. And he looks at me and he comes and he says, guess what? And I go, what? He said, kids like me. And I said, how do you know? He said, they just kind of do, you know? They kind of come around because they somehow know that that I am strong inside. And they want to be around me. And he had this look on his face like, I just can't even describe. And he went on and did extraordinarily well. Um, Ended up in college, came and saw me two or three years later. Very socially and academically successful. I mean, it turned his whole life around. It was kids like that who come back. I mean, geez, that's... So when someone like that comes back and you see them and now they're a young adult. So you basically have just witnessed this glorious thing. They've gotten back on their developmental track. You know, physically they're back there. Their exercise is a big part of their life now. In terms of their mind, they're spending a lot of time every day living the silence as well as the rest of the time living the thinking. You know, they've got a two-part mind now and the thinking and the silence are working together. It's like they're learning how to really sail that sailboat of thinking and keeping it on a good, safe course. They're doing well academically. They've learned how to feel emotions, and um, they're starting to be able to really get close to somebody and, 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 and maybe even find somebody to go through life with. So that's why we're in this business.
0: Well, I can't thank you enough for taking your time and especially ending with a nice story like that. Will you tell people listening how they can reach you, where they can reach you?
1: Well, we are right here at 1187 University in Menlo Park, and uh, we have a phone number, 650-462-9200. And um, we're the little house with the tile roof.
0: How about your website? Do you you know the designation there? MindfulnessCenteredHealing.com MindfulnessCenteredHealing.com Fantastic. I'll repeat this at the end of the podcast. And I will tell you that I have been to your practice, as you know. You have a most inviting, absolutely an oasis uh, of a practice going on in our sort of mixed up uh, healthcare delivery system now, so thank you very much Dr. Newsom. Well, good to see you Good to see you Thank you again Peter for a great and sober conversation. If you want to get a hold of Dr. Peter Newsom, you can go to www.mindfulnesscenteredhealing.com Facebook slash mindfulness-centered-healing and his phone number is 650 9200. Thanks again, Dr. Newsom. My name is Dr. Herbie Bell. You can find me at www.recoveryhealthcare.me, that's .me, or facebook.com slash recoveryhealth. And go to iTunes. Please give us a rating and give us a review because we believe all great things, all healthy things, start with a conversation. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.